Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and I am very, very excited about this episode because the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening today is none other than the brilliant doctor, scientist, writer and broadcaster, Professor Robert Winston. Welcome to the podcast, Professor, or uh, may we call you Robert? Uh, Yes, of course you can. Marvellous. Now, Professor Winston has had an incredible career. It would take all day to run through his achievements, but amongst them, he's worked tirelessly to promote better health, especially for women and babies. He's pioneered improved fertility treatments. He's led research into a whole range of life-changing areas, and he's published hundreds of important papers in scientific journals. But there's something else too, and that's without even going into his stint as a successful theatre director. You see, Robert Winston believes passionately in the importance of engaging everyone in the business of science. And that means talking and writing about it in a way that people can understand, even if, you know, they don't happen to be professors themselves. So he's presented fantastic TV series like The Amazing Child of Our Time, and he's written dozens of popular science books, explaining really quite complex concepts in a way that even I can understand. His latest title, Inventors, Incredible Stories of the World's Most Ingenious Inventions, is published by Dorling Kindersley, and it tells the stories of over 50 people whose creativity and ingenuity have changed the world. So, Robert, why did you decide to write about inventors? Don't know, really. Um, just seemed like something that was worth writing about. I, I think that I think really um, inventors are interesting because they are a bit different, and also because all of us are inventors. I mean, each of you listening to this, you as children in classrooms, for example, you are all inventors. You are all looking at things and working out how you do them, how you use them, how you make them better. And I suppose that's what interests me about inventing. That and also because inventors are very quirky people. I mean, you're quirky. And the inventors that are in this book are very, very quirky indeed. I mean, some of them are quite bizarre. And all of them have one thing in common, I think. And that is that they want to try and improve the world in some way for other people. Absolutely. And given that we are all inventors, as as you say, and that there are so many people who've done such amazing things, how did you choose just 50? Well, it's an impossible job. Like all these, like all, <laughs> like all these books I've written, I mean, it's completely idiosyncratic. Basically, I think it's fair to say that we try to look at a wide range of people coming from poor as well as rich countries. So, for example, there are a couple of African tribesmen in this who are inventors. There are a lot of women because I think women are underrepresented. Yeah. And there are some children who have been inventors as well. They're all here in this book. Well, not all of them, but some of them make a mix, which I think is entertaining. So was there a lot of research involved? And did you find out anything that surprised you? Well, there are always things, everything surprises you if you're sensible, because of course, (laughs) everything that you do that you look at when you research is new. Um, Yeah, I mean, each, uh, each week, I would write about two or three, sometimes four different inventors. So the book took some weeks of of research. And are there any favorite stories that um that came up perhaps that you didn't know before <laughs> well you know they're all quite interesting i mean for example the, the chinese man whose mm. name was who i think his name was who i've got to try and remember it now because he basically he decided he wanted to fly to the moon in about 1600 so he got his wooden chair and he attached uh, i think 42 rockets to it and um 
the rockets were lit. Unfortunately, we don't quite know what happened to him. Uh, he didn't, I don't think, got, get to the moon. I think probably that was about the end of his life. But, uh, you know, who knows exactly what happened? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think quirky things like that are quite funny. Um, also, uh, the story about how laboratory paper was invented by another Chinese, I find mm. that quite interesting as well. And in my own field, of course, the people who really started doing in vitro fertilization, the test tube baby treatment, who are never mentioned, they're always forgotten. A wonderful Chinese man again, actually, um, uh, who I think MC Chang, and a wonderful woman called Anne McLaren, who was British. They were two of the very important people, I think both of whom could have won a Nobel Prize. There are so many amazing stories in this book. It's, it's really fascinating. And it's bound to get people talking. And I wondered, throughout your career, you've, you've always made a point of, of getting people talking and thinking about science. Why is that so important? Well, we live in a society which is dominated by science and is going to be increasingly dominated by science. And of course, science is what's going to save the planet and going to save humanity. I mean, if you want an example of that, look at what's happening around us at the moment. There's no question we're going to beat this virus that we're currently so worried about. And it will be beaten by science as we understand how to improve medicines and improve vaccination and do a whole range of good things which will save not only humans, but also animals as well. So I think that's a very good example. But of course, humans generally are constantly improving their surroundings by science. Everything we're doing, we're looking here at a computer screen at the moment, we're listening to a recording, that's all done by science. That's becoming increasingly important. And it's important too that we learn about science so we use it wisely. Absolutely. So getting people talking and, and thinking about science right right from the classroom onwards that involves explaining some some pretty complicated ideas in in a way that people without that scientific background can understand is is that a challenge not really i think <laughs> simp- uh, thinking simply is an important aspect of science scientists what they try to do is to simplify things for themselves so they understand it <laughs> and i think it's not anything very great I mean, you're going to ask me about science writing, aren't you, in, in your next question, I imagine, yes. judging the way you're going. And I think the idea of science writing is a, is, a, is a non-starter. I don't think there is such a thing as science writing. I think there's just good writing and not so good writing. Mm. And good writing, in my view, involves telling a story. That's what humans mostly do. And we learn by stories. That's what we did 100,000 years ago around the fire outside our cave mouths. And we still actually want to hear stories. You think of people when they're very, very little indeed, what they have is a story, perhaps if they're lucky before they go to bed. That's quite important. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that in telling stories, we do other, we use other tricks. We use metaphor, that is, we use words which might mean two things or things which actually have, or two concepts which in fact reflect each other. And I think that's very important as well. So, for example, when we learn about Red Riding Hood, it sounds very simple, but we're actually learning about human behavior not animal behavior. Yeah. And I think those things are quite important in storytelling. And certainly with this book, which is another science book, what I've tried to do is to tell in a very limited space a story about each of the inventors. Well, I think you've told some amazing stories about them and I would really love to share one of those stories with our listeners. So um, perhaps if we could pause for a moment while you find an extract that you'd like to share and then we'll welcome everybody back to the podcast. What do you think? By all means, yes, of course.
Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom, where I'm thrilled to be talking with one of the most interesting humans on the planet, Professor Lord Robert Winston. Robert, you have an, an extract from your book there. Um, what are you going to share with us? Alexander Graham Bell. Now, he was a Scottish scientist and an engineer who was born in 1847 and died in 1922, about 100 years ago. And what I've written about him is pretty truncated because he had a very, very interesting life. But this is what I say. A theme of communication ran between Alexander Bell's life. His mother, Eliza, was deaf when he was 12 years old. And the woman he later married, Mabel, was also deaf. Alexander's dad was an expert in elocution, which is ensuring words are spoken correctly. And he created the visible alphabet, which helped deaf people to learn to talk. Together, these influences led Alexander to an invention that would change the world that we live in forever, the way we communicate forever. Alec, as his family knew him, was a playful boy who loved experimenting. His early experiments involved convincing people that his family dog, Truve, could talk. First, he taught the dog to growl continuously. Then he mischievously moved the dog's lips and tricked the audience into thinking the dog was speaking because the noises sounded like human words. Now, I think that's pretty amazing, but let me go on with the story. Basically, what was very sad was that the Bells decided to move to Canada from Scotland because both of Alec's brothers died, and it was there that Alec began teaching in deaf schools using his dad's visible alphabet system. He then moved to the US, the United States, and he opened a successful training school for teachers of the deaf in Boston and eventually became a professor at Boston University. Alec was interested in communication technology and hired a man called Thomas Watson as his assistant. And together they experimented with transmitting sound along wires. The very first phone call is said to have been an accident. While they were experimenting, Alexander spilled some battery acid. He called for Thomas to help him, and Thomas heard him through the receiver. And in 1876, they made the world's first telephone. And within a year, the Bell Telephone Company was created. Alec quickly became world famous and a very rich man. Later, he demonstrated the phone to Queen Victoria, who called it most extraordinary. <laughs> Alec continued other inventing pursuits, including a metal detector and a powered aircraft until his death in 1922. And when he died, the American telephone lines went silent for one minute in his honour. Oh, you see, that's that's wonderful. I mean, that that's as interesting as any story that, that you might read in, in a fiction book. And I've never heard anyone speak about Alexander Graham Bell like that before. I've heard people talk about his amazing inventions, but to hear details about his family, his nickname, oh, how he used to make his dog speak, it, it puts his work in, into the context of his life and, and makes it absolutely compelling. Is, is Was that what you wanted to do? Well, there's so much information about Alexander Graham Bell. I mean, he's one of the inventors who's been hugely written about, partly because the telephone is such a big invention. Yeah. So the difficulty in writing about him is not what to put down about him, it's what to exclude, it's right. what not to write, because in fact there is so much. And the dog, I thought, was quite a nice story. 
Uh, I mean, it's not that important <laughs> because, of course, it was completely falling around. But he was a teenager at the time and obviously was trying to – I think he actually he was quite a young teenager. I think he might have been only 12 or 13 uh, when he did that. I think it's, it's great. It's such a great story. And that leads me on to my next question, which is about deciding what to put in and what to leave out um, when you're telling this kind of story or when you're trying to explain a scientific concept. And I'm wondering how important it is to make sure that what you're writing down in a, in a nonfiction piece is 100% facts. I mean, how important is it to keep opinion out of what you're writing? Well, at one level, it's very important because, of course, I am a scientist. So to some extent, my credibility and my reputation depends on being truthful and accurate. But, of course, a lot of these inventors, some of them going back to the 16th and 17th century that we've got in the book, we don't know very much about them. So to some extent, some of the things that the book is saying about them is what we understand they said, or what we think they did, or rather perhaps what people imagined that they did. So to some extent, there's always, if you like, a bit more elaboration of the story. The story Mm -hmm. may not be exactly, exactly as it is, but because everybody creates their own mythology. I mean, it's interesting because at the moment I'm, I'm writing a memoir. I'm writing a series of essays, which I've almost finished about my own life. Um, and I hope it'll be published sometime soon. And, The interesting thing about this is that when I look back at it, I think of it as a novel. I mean, I really can't remember whether I'm telling the truth in it. I'm trying to. But it's, you know, I'm recalling events which happened perhaps 60 years ago or more, and it's not so easy. Uh, And, of course, you know, there is an element where you do embellish things a bit to make them a bit more interesting. I think that's inevitable, and I don't think that's bad writing. Well, that's good to know. Does the writing process for for your books involve a lot of editing? Once you once you've finished your your piece of writing, does does it then go through quite a, a long process where other people are um, sending it back to you for for rewrites or perhaps making changes themselves? Is is that an important part of the process? Oh, I think a good editor is the key to any good book, and I've written books where I'm absolutely indebted to the editor or the editors who've looked at it. Um, and I think that this is true of this book on inventors. We have a brilliant team at uh, Dorling Kindersley, and they've been assiduous. They've been very careful in editing. But it's been difficult because uh, the, there's a rapid turnaround of these books uh, at Dorling Kindersley. We're always writing new books all the time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the team changes halfway through. That's always a bit of a problem. But actually, the relationship between the author and the editor is really important. And with my adult books, I would say that I've been hugely impressed by the editors I've had. They've been absolutely brilliant in seeing things or working out things that I didn't recognise and realising where I wasn't talking sense. I see. And the other thing that struck me about um, the inventor's book is that it is it's really beautiful. The illustrations are gorgeous and very detailed and the way the text is laid out on the page is really engaging. And I wonder if you think that is especially helpful when writing nonfiction, that, that you end up with a, a, a beautiful page that, that draws people in. Uh, no, I don't think that's important, but I do think the illustrations are colossally important in the books that Dorling Kindersley publishes. The reason why I work with them is because actually they have superb illustrators and they Uh do wonderful artwork. And I think they're probably the best publishers or amongst the very best publishers in the world for doing that sort of thing. 
The problem I had with writing this book was, and it was very difficult for me, was that they did the illustrations before I wrote, wrote the words. So yeah. sometimes I had to use words to fit in with what the illustrator had already written, or rather what, what she had drawn, and that's always a problem. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's rather like writing an opera, you know, first comes the words or first comes the music, as Strauss said. Uh, this big question whether you write the words first or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I was doing another book like this, I would try and persuade <laughs> the publisher to let me do the words first and get an illustration <laughs> to work around it. The previous book I did, actually, um, Ask a Scientist, in fact, I did do the text first and they illustrated it afterwards, and that is a lot easier for the writer. Robert, you're a great communicator, and I'd be interested to know if you think that there is anything that can't really be explained to someone without a scientific background. If, if there's any concept which is, is just so esoteric or complex that you, you just couldn't present it in, in a way that someone without a similar background to yourself could understand. Oh, I think the whole point about doing science is that the more science that we do, the more that we know, the less we understand. So there are so many puzzles now which face us because we have better telescopes, for example. We now know how huge space is, but we also know it's expanding, <laughs> that the universe is expanding. Right. So the question is, what's it expanding into? Uh, so that's a big problem in physics and astronomy. And in, and in biology, I would say, we're now starting to make intelligent machines. Artificial intelligence, for example, is becoming more and more important. Yeah. But who knows how the human brain actually works? And it may well be that we'll never fully understand the nature, the nature of human consciousness. To my mind, that's one of the great puzzles. And I think the more research we do, we have to understand the less we understand. And that's important because it's important to keep us modest and recognize that in terms of the planet and the universe, we are very small indeed. Robert, that's such a lot to think about there. Thank you so much. We're, we're nearly run out of time, um, but I know everyone listening will want to know what's happening next for you and, and what else is on the horizon. So we'll pause for a moment. But before that, I just want to remind teachers and parents listening that, as always, we've produced an exclusive resources pack to go with this episode of Author in Your Classroom to help children produce their own fantastic non-fiction writing. You can download it from Plazoom and the details are in the episode notes. Robert, let's pause for a moment and then we'll come back and find out what's happening next. Once again, welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with Professor Robert Winston. Robert, you strike me as someone who always likes to have a project on the go. So what are you working on at the moment? Well, I'm working on how uh, embryos use energy, human embryos, how they actually metabolize, how they use chemicals. And I think if we get it right, we might make treatments very much easier for a lot of women. That's one of the things. That's wonderful. Um, and I also do a huge amount of stuff in schools. I mean, I go to schools a great deal. And I try to persuade school children about what I think requires one to be successful. And I'll, I'm very happy to give you the list of things I think that we do if you want, if you, if you, if you really want. Yes, please. Well, I think the first thing to realize is that, you know, none of us is geniuses. A, a genius is very rare. And actually, you wouldn't want to be a genius. 
what we need to be able to do actually is to recognize that we've got to keep learning. That's important. Right. The more you learn, the more useful you are both to yourself and to other people. And I think that geniuses are exceptional because they work separately and you don't really understand them all the time. But the best way of success, I think, is to work collaborative, to work with, with other people. In my view, one of the biggest messages, and that applies to some extent with inventors, that you can't do things on your own. Generally, you need other people around you. And the other thing I think that about inventors that's really important, I mention it in the book quite a few times, is that it's really important to fail. Be frightened of failure, yes. because failure actually leads to success. In order to work out how something actually works, you need to fail and do it better and keep on persisting. And that's a very, very big and important part of this. I would also say this, that I think I think it's it, it's it's very important to understand this business about being clever. It's really not, you know, cleverness isn't really the big thing. It's much more about how you relate to other people. Success in life is actually very much about how you value people, how you respect people, yeah. how you treat other people. And in my view, if you do that properly, you're always likely to be successful. It's very, very unusual not to be successful if you actually end up with good communication, which is very much about what we're saying here. We're communicating now, and actually communication is best done face-to-face. -face. We can't do that on a computer, but at least there is a need to have a respect for each other, and I hope that will help you think about communication in future. That's absolutely fantastic advice. Thank you so much. I just have one last quick question for you, um, and then I'll let you go. Um, when you're telling the stories of the inventors in this book, they, they are really compelling and just such a joy to read and even more of a joy to be read out to you. When you were reading out the story earlier, I was, I was completely wrapped. Would you ever consider writing a nonfiction book? Well, I, I have done. I mean, I've written some science books, which are nonfiction, but also I've written a book called The Human Mind, which is a serious book about how the brain works, and another book about human instinct, which is about the notion of, uh, well, our instincts, what actually drives us and what we think about. And I've written a couple of other books, too, for general uh, uh, adult use, which are essentially uh, really about sort of semi-scientific topics. Um I think the interesting question is, would I write a novel? Um, I, the only reason for writing a novel, I think, really, I don't think I could. I don't think I'm good enough at it. But, I mean, I think you're more likely to make money if you write a novel than if you write nonfiction. Nonfiction in the whole doesn't pay. But actually, I enjoy writing nonfiction. I find that I get gripped and interested by the subject I'm trying to write about. And I learn always while I'm doing it. And that, I think, is quite an important aspect. So don't be frightened about writing about subjects at school that you want to try and evaluate because that's a very good way to go forward. Thank you so much for answering the question that I meant to ask you in the first place. I've written down, would you ever consider writing a non-fiction book? And of course, I meant, would you ever consider writing a novel? So thank you for answering that for me. Yes, sure, of course, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, there will be children listening who already love writing, who are excited by science and who might be thinking about becoming a science writer when they're a bit older. Do you have any advice for anyone who, who wants to develop just a really great nonfiction writing style? I, I really think, you know, the, one of the, the tricks in life is to follow the things which interest you. Right. To my mind, 
of course, we have to do things which don't interest us a lot of the time, and that's important. Otherwise, we would do things that we need to do but we don't do very well. But ultimately, if you're going to write about something, you've got to find it interesting. Otherwise, sitting down in front of a blank page and thinking you don't have any interest in this subject, that becomes very difficult. And so part of the thing, I think, here is there will always be something that will be of interesting. It's a question of focusing on that. Mm -hmm. The way I'm writing at the moment for adults, I've got, as I say, I've got this, this memoir on the go. I'm looking at some chapters. I think, my goodness, that's really boring. How the hell do I get around <laughs> that? What do I do about it? And then I think, actually, there's that little event I remember. That was very interesting. And I can balance the whole chapter around that and then uh -huh. expand into the general concepts, the general ideas that I'm thinking about. I think that's a trick that many, many authors use. And I think if it's used wisely, it really works. Excellent advice. Again, Robert, we've just about run out of time for this episode. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking part. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. And I hope the listeners will get as much out of it as I have. Yeah, may I say thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And it's, you know, it's very important that we have this sort of conversation. And what I want to say to you finally is keep on reading, keep on learning. It doesn't matter too much what you read a lot of the time, but everything that you read, you can use to the benefit of yourselves and your brain and your learning in the long term. So very good luck to you and keep hard at your books. Thanks again, Robert. As I say, you've shared some great advice and I'm sure that everyone listening can't wait to put it into action. And there we go. That about wraps up this episode. Thanks to all our listeners for being here and we'll see you next time with Author in Your Classroom. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.